Grace, mercy, and peace to you in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, So this Sunday is the last Sunday of the church year. Uh, And uh, as is typical, when we get to this point of the year, it doesn't just jump on us all of a sudden. We've been building up to it uh, for a while now. In the past few weeks, we've been talking about end times sort of things. If you remember, uh, two weeks ago, we uh, focused on the epistle lesson from 1 Thessalonians 4, and the hope and encouragement uh, that Paul gives and encourages the Thessalonians to share with one another as they comfort one another with uh, the promise of Christ's return in glory. Last week, then, we dealt with the Old Testament lessons, which for a while had uh, been from Amos and Zephaniah, kind of sharing an opposite picture of dread of the coming of the Lord and seeing how that really balances with the hope and encouragement seen in the epistles, just as we usually see law and gospel do, uh, that the sinful nature needs to uh, have the fear of the Lord put into it to uh, be reminded of the judgment day that is coming uh, while the the new creation in a relationship with God is a child to the dear heavenly father eagerly awaits and looks forward to the day of the Lord, even that aspect of judgment in it. Well, today, since we've got the Old Testament and the epistle, you may guess where we're going. Uh, we dig into the gospel, which similarly over the course of the past few weeks has been really digging into a theme, and that is uh, the similar idea of Christ's coming again, Uh, but in the midst of that, in being conveyed in the context of Christ's first coming, uh, which is very much involved in it. And it's helpful to, again, kind of step back and review how that theme has developed Uh, over the course of the past few weeks, uh, that uh, the coming of Christ uh, becomes very immediate and very contextual in the last week of his life, Holy Week as we refer to it in the context of Easter, uh, where Jesus came to Jerusalem for Palm Sunday, and in this week leading up to it, a great deal happens contextualizing the events that will take place at the end of it, uh, Good Friday and Easter. Uh, that context can be important. For example, we see Jesus enter Jerusalem on Palm Sunday amidst shouts of triumph, praise, and celebration that he is hailed as the coming king. It is a very Advent sort of thing, which is why that reading is used for Advent oftentimes as well as Palm Sunday. Uh, One of the first things Jesus did when he entered Jerusalem uh, was, in some ways, just what was expected of him, and in some ways very different. That he, he comes in and topples the existing authorities to claim authority for himself, but it's not to the palace that he heads. He doesn't run straight to the palace and kick out the Herod or Pilate, but goes 
to the temple and cleanses the temple, kicking out the money changers, the merchants, and uh, cleansing the temple rather than the palace, showing that he's come to claim a spiritual authority as the heavenly Messiah and not a mere earthly Messiah. He responds to the, uh, the challenge um, by the Pharisees, chief priests, and Sadducees who question his authority over the temple or over teaching. And they try various schemes and tests uh, to trick him into uh, some uh, dangerous or, or inaccurate comment. Uh, but whether it's uh, the uh, paying taxes of C- to Caesar or something else, Jesus shows his wisdom is greater than theirs and ultimately puts them in their place uh, by showing how he has rejected them and their leadership uh, just as much as the merchants and money changers in the temple. He tells the parable of the two sons, one of whom claimed to do the father's will but didn't, and the other uh, apparently wouldn't but ended up doing and supplanting uh, the uh, favored son in the process. The parable of the tenants of the vineyard who tried to claim the vineyard for themselves and ended up with those wretches being put to a wretched end. The wedding banquet where those who were invited would not go and so they were replaced. That again and again Jesus is leading uh, to the idea that he has come to make some big changes. His coming is not without effect. There will be a changing of the guard. And not from Rome to the people of Judah. But from those who have sought their own righteousness. Uh, to those who are willing to receive Christ's righteousness. And so the Pharisees and the chief priests and the Sadducees are, are rejected and made very clear as Jesus continues with the, the seven woes. Woe to you Pharisees and teachers of the law uh, who are like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones uh, who will not enter the kingdom of heaven and won't let anybody else enter either. He goes on to talk about the signs of the end of the age and the destruction of the temple as that time has passed away. And then we get into the parables of the kingdom of heaven, which we've heard recently in our readings. As he tells these stories to the people to help try to describe what the new Jesus administration is going to look like what this new changing world will be. And here we can actually probably benefit from stepping even further back because it hasn't just been for the past few weeks that we've been building up to the last Sunday of the church year. The whole church year actually builds up to the last Sunday of the church year. Uh, And uh, really all of Matthew as well, especially when it comes to the Uh, idea of the kingdom of heaven, 
Matthew makes many, many references to Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of heaven. 31 references to the kingdom of heaven in Matthew. Uh, We learn uh, several kind of overarching things from Jesus' discourse already throughout Matthew that are helpful to keep in mind for context uh, as we come to today's reading. The basic summary of Jesus' teaching as it uh, began uh, back in uh, in Galilee, that the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that calls on people to repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Uh, So one of the key ideas of the kingdom of heaven right off the bat is that it's near and at hand and requiring repentance. One of the other things that is very clearly established is that it's different than you would expect. The greatest and the least are reversed in the kingdom of heaven. That whoever would be great in the kingdom of heaven must be called least and the servant of all, which is emphasized repeatedly as uh, the Beatitudes remind us that the uh, poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of heaven, the persecuted inherit the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of heaven belongs to little children. And unless someone will enter the kingdom of heaven like a little child, they can never enter it. And so the kingdom of heaven has already been established as a bit of a reversal from earthly uh, thoughts and values. And of course, the most obvious one in some ways, uh, but worth establishing, is that the kingdom of God is of great value uh, to God and to us. Uh, Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be granted to you, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He compares the kingdom of God to a treasure in a field that someone would sell everything they have to possess. And then from the other side is uh, that the kingdom of God is something that he values enough to give everything he has to possess. In the parable of the merchant searching for fine pearls. Uh, that the kingdom of God is valuable uh, both to God and us as the greatest value, in fact. We also read in, in Matthew how the kingdom of God is hidden uh, until the last moment. On oh, the parables of the wheat and the weeds, I remember that the there's not going to be an immediate distinction between the wheat and the weeds. And until the last day, they grow together, uh, similar to the, the fish and the dragnet. Uh, that they're uh, all hauled up at once. The mustard seed uh, that seems insignificant at first. The yeast, again, hidden in the dough. That the kingdom of heaven is, is very hidden Uh, until it's ultimately revealed on the last day. And then uh, a last emphasis in Matthew is that the kingdom of heaven really precludes uh, self-righteousness. That the kingdom of heaven is based on the righteousness of the king himself, and it's, it's not us. It's his righteousness and mercy uh, that defines the kingdom, not our merit, 
And that the merciful king's mercy uh, is to be shown forth by us as well. Parables like the, the king who forgave his servant's debt. And when the servant goes out and chokes his fellow servant saying, pay what you owe me. Uh, Jesus said, don't do that. Uh, the laborers in the vineyard, where the, those who come in at the very end of the day get the same pay as those who are working the whole time. And of course, they're unhappy. And Jesus says, don't be like them. That the uh, kingdom of heaven is defined by mercy for all of us. And there's no room for self-righteousness uh, as though we had entered on our own steam or to begrudge those who have received mercy just like we are, have, in fact, ourselves. So when we come to the parables of the kingdom of heaven uh, at the end of Matthew, in the last day, there's already been a lot of groundwork laid which informs uh, our understanding and application of what follows as well. When Jesus tells the parable of the lazy butler, which probably isn't how it's uh, headed in your Bible, but is a good way to think of it, I think, that the uh, master leaves his house in charge of the steward or the butler, and uh, he's uh, gone some time, and after a while, the butler says, hey, my master's been gone a long time, and he begins to beat his fellow servants and indulge his own pleasures with his master's materials. When the master comes back, he isn't happy. And of course, we can see in there also a parallel idea uh, to what we talked about uh, previously last week in Zephaniah, the idea of having no fear of God. The Lord will do nothing either good or ill is Zephaniah's indictment of the attitude of the people of Judah, that they just, they don't care what God is going to do. They don't believe what God is going to do. We see that same attitude reflected in the buller. My master's been gone a long time. He's not coming back. Don't worry about him. Well, turns out you should. Uh, we go on to the parable of the ten virgins or the ten bridesmaids. Uh, the, uh, those with uh, wise ones with oil in their lamps and the foolish ones without oil in their lamps. Helpful to keep in mind that oil is very symbolic of the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. Uh, that those who have the Holy Spirit are prepared uh, to enter into the uh, wedding feast of the Lamb in his kingdom, uh, to borrow other terminology than that in Matthew, while those without uh, lose even what they have, which is a perfect segue into the parable of the talents that follows, uh, that makes it very uh, clear. The master who goes on a journey and trusts ten talents to one servant, five talents to another, one talent to another. And the servants with ten talents and five talents invest it so it returns a yield. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with little. I will entrust you with much. The servant with one talent was scared and he buried it because he uh, saw his master as harsh and unkind. And even what he had 
was taken away from him. And the, here we see how the oil the Lord gives us, the gifts the Lord gives us, multiply and provide on their own. That uh, the talents uh, the, of the, the gifts or resources spiritually that God has given us, the gift of faith is self-replicating when we entrust it into his care. And we're not going to run out of oil. We're not going to run out of talents when we uh, use them uh, as God has given to us. Well, those without faith will lose even their lives. Which brings us then to today's gospel lesson of the sheep and the goats, which isn't really a parable uh, exactly, although it has some elements of it. It seems to be trying to be a parable a little bit in some times. But the sheep and the goats then builds on, on some of these other themes and, and emphasizes them, that the sheep and the goats are mixed together, like the wheat and the tares, the good fish and the bad fish, uh, that it's a, a hidden kingdom uh, that becomes manifest when the Lord brings out his own on the last day. We see that it's a kingdom of the least, uh, the lowest, and the humble. Uh, when uh, the king uh, praises his sheep for stuff they didn't even know they did. They weren't proud of their place. They weren't uh, building up their own reputations. Uh, that when did we do all these things? The uh, Lord even refers to the least of these my brothers. Well, whatever you did for them, you did unto me. Again, highlighting the kingdom of the least and the humble. And again, as we've already seen in Matthew, uh, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that the uh, kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. And here in the story of the sheep and goats, uh, it refers to the kingdom prepared for you since before the beginning of the world. It's strongly implying that these are the poor in spirit he was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. And we also see how more is given uh, to those who had that those who are blessed by God from before the foundations of the world refer, receive an even greater blessing for serving Christ himself, although they didn't even know it. A lot of the goats uh, lose what little they have. The theme that ends up emerging most strongly out of all of this, then, uh, is to keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour when all this takes place. That the suddenness of uh, the judgment that is hidden for a time suddenly becomes apparent on that last day. And that judgment takes place not on the, the basis of what the, the world values or treasures, uh, but in relationship to Christ. And so what Jesus says throughout 
all his uh, explanations and descriptions of the kingdom of heaven is keep watch. And that's why I've invented a new, a new fashion accessory. Uh, wrist accessory, to be specific. It, it looks like a watch, but it doesn't tell the time. Instead of a clock face or a digital readout, it just has a picture of Jesus. I call it the keep watch. And the idea here is whenever you look at it, it reminds you that you don't know the day or the hour because it doesn't tell you the time. But it also reminds you to keep your eyes on Jesus. It reminds you to keep watching him. Uh, to keep your eyes on Jesus, or as the author of Hebrews would say it, uh, to fix your eyes uh, uh, on the, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That we would not watch wars and rumors of wars to try and ascertain where he's coming back or when he's coming back. Say, oh, there's a war in Israel. It's got to be now. Or there's a, a rumor of a war somewhere else, and so it's going to be then that we wouldn't watch the world and what it's doing as though that were the primary thing going on. But keep watching Jesus. Uh, to keep our, our eyes on him uh, because he and his return are our hope and comfort and encouragement. They are our safeguard against the temptations of the world that would lead us astray. And the church here is one of the ways we've actually developed specifically to do that. That we have the church year or Christian calendar uh, specifically to help keep our, our thought process arranged according to Christ and the life of Christ rather than just earthly things. So that it's not just the last Sunday of November, it's the last Sunday of the church year. Uh, so that it's not just the last Sunday of December, it's the first Sunday of Christmas. It's not just Epiphany or January 6th, the day the Capitol was overrun. It's Epiphany, uh, the day when we celebrate the revelation of Christ, the visit of the wise men. Things that keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that we keep a watch uh, by uh, keeping watching Jesus, uh, by uh, making the, the rhythm of the church here, uh, the rhythm of our lives, as we walk with Jesus uh, through the Gospels, through the events of his life, and as we put that into practice in our life, as Scripture so often enjoins us of uh, true religion, uh, faithfulness uh, to God, is keeping watch over the widow and the orphan, to watch over those who are defenseless, helpless, whom God has given us the resources to help and defend. It's 
a, there is an important distinction between faith and, and works, obviously. As Lutherans, we make a very big deal out of that, that we are uh, saved by grace through faith, not by works. Even faith isn't of ourselves. As I often say that it's the heat of the fire that cooks the meat, not the light. And yet, where there is heat, there is also light. Uh, where there's smoke, there's fire. That faith and works are distinguished as it comes to the uh, source of our justification. Uh, but in practice of everyday living, the two always go together. Uh, as Luther himself uh, pointed out, that we are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. That in readings like here, our gospel lesson, in other places, it's noteworthy that f faith and works aren't really distinguished. Uh, that there's, it's not a distinction of the never the twain shall meet sort of uh, variety that real concern and faith in Christ go together. It's only important to distinguish between them to get the order right. Uh, that faith in Christ is the, the foundation of true love for our fellow man. Truly good works are those done out of uh, love for Christ. Uh, love for God and his word. And so that well, we can see our neighbor, even the least of these, as opportunities to serve Christ. And in doing so, uh, we're simply living out uh, the, the faith uh, that he has given us. It's the Holy Spirit inside us, doing the works of the Spirit, yielding the fruits of the Spirit. And that's why, first and foremost, we always need to remember to keep our eyes on Jesus. You know, the, the keep watch is a little bit of a joke. You could probably just get a watch and put a picture of Jesus on it if you want. Uh, but whatever you do to remind yourself, uh, it's good to remember. And all the more as we see the day approaching, uh, what time it is. Uh, not 8.51, because the sermon is going long. Uh, not uh, the last Sunday in November or the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Uh, but it is the last days. And ultimately what that means is it's Jesus o'clock. A good way to think of it that whatever time it is, it's Jesus o'clock. As they say in uh, sports, it's game time, right? Well, for us, it's God time. Whenever anybody asks you what time it is, maybe you can even say it's God time because it is God's time. And it is time to be about God's work and God's business. As we do so, uh, we're filled with the blessings that only God can give. And may that peace that is beyond all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus as we await the day of his glorious return. Amen.